Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, Alabama won again. We'll talk to a college football savant about the title game and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 96 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America, Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every weekday, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show on Wednesday, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after the live broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Sometimes famous sports moments are known not only for the plays themselves, but for the calls that accompany them. The game-winning touchdown pass or shot or walk-off home run can even be more memorable with the television or radio broadcast added to it, and most of us can probably remember our favorite sports calls rather quickly. But covering a sporting event is a tricky spot for broadcasters, especially as the pressure of the game grows. Should they predict some outcomes and jot something down to refer to or let emotion take over and completely make the call off the cuff? Either way, there's nothing quite like the raw emotion of a sports call, even if it becomes a little bit too raw. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Those sports broadcasters aren't under the same type of pressure as the athletes and the teams they're covering. There's still pressure to make sure that the correct calls are made at the right times. That pressure only grows as the magnitude of the game or a specific moment does, and each can either add to the moment or even take away from it. In the National Football League, every game has some form of importance especially when it comes to national broadcasts. When longtime sportscaster Sean McDonough became just the fifth play-by-play voice of Monday Night Football in favor of Mike Tirico in 2016, 
football fans were treated with a solid and now recognizable voice to lead them through the games. He's been behind the microphone for MLB contests and college football and basketball games as well, and has been fortunate enough to call some familiar sports moments in each of them. In fact, you might remember one of his calls from one of the more exciting finishes of the Michigan State-Michigan rivalry back in 2015 when Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh was in his debut season. Well, he has trouble with the snap, and the ball is free. It's picked up by Michigan State's Jalen Watts Jackson, and he scores on the last play of the game. Unbelievable. As you most likely heard, there are times when the excitement in Sean's voice is unable to keep up with the excitement of the play itself. Such was the case this past weekend, when the Tennessee Titans squared off at Kansas City in the AFC wildcard game. The Chiefs held a 21-3 lead at halftime and had no business losing the contest. But with six minutes left in the game and the Titans trailing 21-16, the game turned. From the 22, second and 10, Mariota to the goal line, touchdown Tennessee! Then, with under two minutes remaining and the Titans needing one first down to ice the game, the Chiefs were given a miracle. Chiefs really up against it. First and ten, Tennessee. And the ball comes out! The ball has come out! Derek Johnson, the all-time leading tackler in the history of the Chiefs, with a touchdown for Kansas City! Marcus Peters ripped it away from Derrick Henry. Unfortunately, for both the Chiefs and Sean McDonough's voice, the play was ruled dead, as running back Derrick Henry was down. While some giggled like schoolgirls for noticing Sean's voice betraying him, even his own broadcast partner in John Gruden couldn't help but have some fun with it as well. Wacky play to change the course of a game of a season. I was glad your voice didn't crack that time. Yeah, I was two for one. A change in scenery would not provide Sean McDonough with an elixir for his vocal cords. Sean was on call, this time on ESPN Radio, for the college football national championship game between Georgia and Alabama. The ending was thrilling, unexpected, and provided yet another emotional roller coaster for all parties involved. Three receivers right, one to the left, straight back to pass, going deep, throwing it down the far sideline, and it is caught for a touchdown! Devontae Smith wins the national championship down the left sideline and wide open behind the defense. One true freshman to another. Whether a hot cup of tea or a strong cough medicine, there's no telling what potion or anecdote would add some Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones to Sean McDonough's voice in place of, say, Tiny Tim or Mariah Carey on New Year's Eve. However, Sean McDonough easily has the last laugh, getting to call our favorite games from behind the microphone while we're subjected to watching them from our couches. 
And fortunately, McDonough has no shot of overtaking the best voice-cracking broadcaster in sports history. Hall, eight to shoot, Hall, the runner! Loose ball, it's good! With 4.4 to go, Shannon! Don't want to foul! Shannon, from the corner! I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to work on our voices. Abravo figaro, bravo bravissimo, abravo figaro, bravo bravissimo. A te fortuna, a te fortuna, a te fortuna, non mancherà. La 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 la. A te fortuna, a te fortuna, a te fortuna, non mancherà. When we come back, we'll talk to a former player and current college football analyst about covering the game and the national championship. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to the bridge. This week, we want to know, what New Year's resolution have you already broken and why? A quick housekeeping note to the show, as longtime listeners might have noticed in the open, the bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. You'll hear new episodes of the show every Wednesday featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest that headlines the show. And I'm also in the process of working on a second show for the week that will air on Mondays and center around a more sports talk specific show. And I'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. Also, to those currently listening live on Sports Radio America, it's already been mentioned that the show is then released as the Bridge Sports Podcast on Wednesday nights after the live broadcast on iTunes and at LondonBridge.com. And each week you'll be able to hear additional content that sometimes does not make the show, including an exclusive segment to the podcast called The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show decides to pick. Of course, that segment is for entertainment purposes only, and you'll be able to hear that each week on the podcast immediately following the interview with that week's guest. Now to this week's guest and Michael Felder. He is a college football video analyst for Bleacher Report, who also was a national college football writer for them in the past. Mike is a former high school standout in Charlotte who then walked on to play with North Carolina in the 2000s and has certainly put his knowledge of the game to use in writing, broadcasting, radio, and podcasting over the years and was kind enough to drop by during one of his busiest weeks. 
We'll talk about how playing the game has helped him covering the game and some of what he does in doing so before diving into the national championship game between Georgia and Alabama to focus on some of the bigger plays, the play of the quarterbacks, legacies, and more. You can follow Mike on Twitter. He's at In the Bleachers. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Michael Felder. He's a college football video analyst for Bleacher Report, basically an all-around college football guy. Mike, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and certainly more than enough to talk about with yet another national championship game now under our belts. But before we got into that, I wanted to start by turning the clock backs a little bit. I know you played high school football in Charlotte and have a couple first-team all-conference selections under your belt. Also walked on to play at North Carolina and had a couple years of football there. When you get into the rocking chair days of sorts much later in life, what would you say will be the number one story you'll tell about your playing days? Oh, man, this is a great question. Um, I think for me, probably <laughs> um, probably the best the best story would probably be about uh, that junior year that I had uh, at East Mac where uh, I was basically all-conference, all-state player and, you know, scooped and scored. Uh, I t- got a touchdown, outran Kenny Moore, who ended up playing at Wake Forest and uh, played for the Panthers for a little while, outran him to the end zone and uh, went ahead and put that one on the board. And it was, that was a good time. And then, Probably, I, I make no bones about not be like not being super great in college, and but having a great time. So most of my rocking chair stories will be about all the dumb stuff that we did um, between trying to avoid workouts and maximizing go out time while still making it to the five a.m. practice. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for one of those stories. Then, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were just we were just a, a motley crew, man. We used to we'd go, you know, Tuesdays, Thursdays. We had workouts Monday, Wednesday, Fridays for winter conditioning, and those things got going. You know, right at six a.m., you had to be dressed and ready. You had to be there at the you had to be at the facility, then dressed and ready out of the indoor spot by like five forty-five, ready to go, so that when the whistle hit at six, you were rocking and rolling. And, there was a little, you had to make it a hump from stadium. So we used to go out till, you know, three, four in the morning. And then, uh, we, where we were walk over to the stadium and sleep in our lockers so that when everybody else came in, they could wake us up so we could get out and go do workouts. It's amazing what the body was able to do in in the younger years, in the 20s, yep. isn't it? If we were to do that now, I don't think we'd be waking up for when practice had to start. I don't I don't think I would be able to listen. I have, I make no doubt about it. There have been times with work that we have had long nights and I've had to get up, you know, with the 6 a.m. call time. The difference is there, it's one thing to stand around and watch other people do football or to go on camera, it's a completely different world when you have to get up and do wind sprints and mat drills and all that jazz. Like, I could not get that done at 6 a.m., no chance, no chance at all. In your sophomore year in 2004, North Carolina finished 6-5, and five, which was good enough to play in the Continental Tire Bowl before yeah. there were even more bowls as there are now against Boston College at Bank America Stadium, home of the Panthers in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
I don't really know if you've actually played in the game because defensive stats are always hard to come by, and I couldn't find any for that game. Of course, everything's offensive-oriented. But just in general, for that game to be in Charlotte, how cool was that for you to get to be a part of the team when they were able to do that? I had a blast. Um, this is one of those things that sort of really colors how I view bowl games. They are a great experience for all college football players that get to go to them. Uh, one, the money. You get paid to travel to the game. So if your team travels together, as they do with major bowl games, like the Rose Bowl, obviously the playoff games, but the Cotton Bowl and all those, teams usually travel together. They don't let you just drive there. So they pay for you to go home and come back to fly with the team. Or if you're traveling to the space by yourself, they'll pay for you to travel from the school to the event or from home to the event. And so basically, I got paid to travel from Chapel Hill to Charlotte uh, when I was actually already in Charlotte, which was absolutely beautiful. And then you get your per diem, which is nice. And I just ate at my house with my parents, took some teammates over to my family to get a, a good meal in because uh, we, we had a report on Christmas Day. So we got all those Christmas leftovers and took some teammates like Murphy, Ronnie McGill, a couple other guys over to the house to eat like good home cooking and keep that $50 a day in your pocket. So that was great. Didn't play in the game. I traveled. Technically, I was on travel squad for that game, which was amazing because I didn't have to do the beatdown workout that the regular non-travel squad does and that I had done by because of, as, as a scout team player. And turns out it was just a clerical error. Somebody made a mistake, put me on travel squad. I was on all the rosters. Hey, fantastic. You guys messed up. I'm skipping these workouts. I'm doing the easy in-season workout. And then at the end, and then once the game day came, I was like, I've made sure to ask the coach. I was like, coach, I'm not traveling, right? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what happened with that. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. Um, now I don't have to wear, like, a full pad and pants and cleats to this game. I can wear a windsuit with the jersey on, and that is way more comfortable when you're standing on the sideline. Excellent. Everything worked out, and you probably could have even busted your friends that, hey, you better come to the game. You never know if they're going to get me in. Hometown kid, big story. Who knows what's going to happen? So, <laughs> everything was coming up for that week, and as you mentioned, bowl games, more often than not, are a great experience for players. And fun fact for listeners, unfortunately for you guys, Boston College ended up winning the game 37-24. With the key play coming, you guys are down three. Boston College quarterback Paul Peterson breaks his leg in the fourth quarter. BC runs a fake field goal handoff for a touchdown, and the holder for that handoff was none other than Matt Ryan, who we will see yeah. this weekend for the Atlanta Falcons. So it really is a small world, and everything comes together, though I'm sure the loss you probably would have preferred would have went the other way. But as we mentioned, a great experience overall, and, and it's interesting seeing some familiar names when you get to look back around that time period. I'm interested to know as well, what made you decide after your playing days, after college, to go from playing the game to covering the game and how you got your start with that? Actually, it was a friend's dad who we used to just sit around and talk about sports a bunch. And he thought that I had something that was worth saying, something that was a little bit different than the stuff he got used to hearing during, like, you know, talking with his older friends and stuff that was different than a little depth of things that were different when his son and I would, and our friends would all get into discussions over at their house while we were hanging out. He was like, you should write some of this stuff down. So I started out writing and 
it was very bad, but I did it and I kept doing it. And I got a piece of advice. It wasn't even directly directed specifically at me, but Matt, Matt Hinton, who I think he's with CBS now. He used to be Dr. Saturday at Yahoo. Uh, he was just kind of giving out general advice in the industry. He said, find your niche and hammer it down. And from that, I was like, you know what? Like, why am I trying to do all sports? Let's do the sport that I know better than, you know, most people know. And I just dialed in on football. And at that point, I mean, it's 2008, I guess. And there is no ACC football, or anything. So I was like, well, let me, let me get into that space because there's all these SEC websites and all these big 10 websites and the PAC 12 is kind of doing their thing. And, same with the Big 12. Let's just kind of dial in on some ACC stuff, and we'll work from there. And I did that for a little while, worked on a little bit of podcasting, and actually got to guest host on the In the Butchers podcast with Brian Sikowski and ended up, he liked it, he liked me, the podcast did well, and he had brought me on over to InTheBleachers.net and worked there with him. He is now an official in college football where he, you know, like a referee, like a game day official, he's working the sidelines like a linesman. So he gets to, he's doing that. He left me the website as he transitioned into working in some D2 and some FCS and working in, working his way up to FBS football. And I took over the website, dialed down what we were doing to let's focus in on big time football. Let's tell some interesting stories. Let's break down the game from to, you know, break the game down to kind of pieces that folks can maybe understand in terms of recruiting, in terms of how, winter conditioning works in terms of, you know, breaking down uh, actual why things work, why things don't work. And I did that from, goodness, 2009, 2010, 2011, was doing that and also covering high school football for charlottepreps.tv, which was fun. I got to be on camera for the first time. It was very different, very hard. And that was also very bad at the start. And, um, but you learn from doing some bad stuff early. I also was a lot thinner then, which was very nice. So that's the good part. When you go back and watch old stuff and like, Hey, I was so bad on camera, but also my body was so tight on camera. So there's some give and take there. And in uh, 2012, I got hired by Bleacher Report really was, uh, kind of a blessing. I was really thinking about stopping and Bleacher Report is what kept me going Got hired for them for a full-time position or for a contracted out position in 2012, 12, 13, uh, and 14. And in 14, they, I, in the end of 13, start of 14, I transitioned to doing only video. And then as I transitioned to only video, they brought me on as a full-time production employee, which was like a blessing. Cause like, I'm very bad with money and like trying to pay taxes as a contract employee is a nightmare. So being full-time with the taxes automatically coming out was a huge benefit. and then that's where I'm at now, you know, and we'll see what happens next. Um, I got an interesting, you know, it's, it's going to be what happens. I'm working towards the end of my contract and would love to stay, but we'll see what happens in the future. There's a lot going on in college football and sort of the media landscape. So um, that's, that's how I got to where I am is just a lot of work, a lot of work and um, some good breaks. And I think that being able to do something that not a lot of people do is probably what helped me the most because of, the background in football, there's a lot of people that play football, but they don't write or they can't write or they're not good on camera. They're not comfortable on camera. And I kind of hit a little sweet spot there where uh, while I'm not, you know, a big name in terms of, you know, playing career, which is what a lot of folks kind of instantly go for at the end of the day, 
uh, being, I, and I talked to you, I actually had uh, a couple drinks with uh, some old teammates and some old coaches because the American Football Coaches Association convention is in Charlotte right now. And they like the stuff I do. And it was one of those things where they were like, yeah, you learn more about football than you probably realize from doing scout team, from sitting in meetings, from doing all those things. I got to play, instead of playing one coach's defense at Carolina, I got to play every single defense of every team that we played. And that goes a long way in terms of understanding how pieces fit. And it's been an invaluable resource for me in terms of understanding what's happened. I'm glad you brought up the in the bleachers portion of what you've been able to do in sports media. I don't know if some of the younger listeners might think that your Twitter handle at in the bleachers is just a witty anecdote for working at bleacher report, but there's more that went into that (laughs) years ago when, when you were doing stuff for in the bleachers. So it does work Mm -hmm. out and it's humorous that you're able to sort of bring that into what you're doing now. And, And you're right in saying that what your role was in college football was doing so much more than just here's what you might be doing on this particular game day. It's not only do you need to know what our team is doing, you have to know what the other team is doing and immerse yourself completely in the game as a whole. And I was interested to know how you playing the game, how you being around the players, just being involved with college football has helped you in covering it because I'm sure you're not someone like maybe I might be where I watch football following the ball, not necessarily looking around the field for what others are doing. And I I assume that you're able to see a lot more than the general fan is as well when you're watching college football on Saturdays. Yeah, I think that that's one of the, that's to me the biggest difference between playing and or coaching and being an observer is it takes a long time to train your eyes for what you're looking at. And a lot of that training comes from sitting and filming, getting yelled at by someone about what you're doing instead of what the ball's doing. So for me, just, and I think I did a tough, I, I don't remember who I wrote this for, but I wrote about how I watch football for somebody. And basically I don't look at the ball very much. Uh, the big thing for me is, I'm reading, I still watch football like I'm playing safety or like I'm playing down in the box of the linebacker. So I look at the offense. The first thing that happens on every play, I'm looking at the offensive line. Are they high hat? Are they run blocking? What are they doing early? And then I'm looking at rotations. Uh, I'm looking at quarterback drop. How deep is it? Because we know when the ball is going to come out and where his shoulders are pointing. Like those are all the little things that I'm looking at. And then at the same time, trying to figure out which which way the defense is rotating. Are they run? Are they blitzing? Where's the pressure coming from? Who's filling in over top of the pressure? Does the safety roll over the top pre snap? So I'm looking at all those little things, and it's been it's been interesting watching. You know, because I'm all day Saturday. We've got the double TVs going and just watching. And my wife is amazed that the fact that it seems like I'm watching one game, we're watching another game. I'm seeing this happen. So I think there is a, a benefit to being able to see multiple things happen at one time and understanding how this happened. So it led to this. And the craziest part is I think I'm okay at it, but sitting down and watching with my best friend who uh, Ryan Taylor played in the league for a couple of years with green Bay, with the Browns and the Ravens, he's even better at it. And he sees stuff that I, he sees stuff before I see it. Like he's two, three steps ahead of me. He's like, no, no, no. Watch the way this tight end moves. And I'm like, you saw that he'd had it moved yet. He's like, yeah, but you see that first step, you know, he's going to take a wide release with that first step. It drops back instead of moving out. He shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. So that's a big plus and always trying to get better with watching. So 
that's a huge thing for me. But the other part is the human part of it. And I think that's a thing that a lot of folks, and it's not a, it's not to dump on people that, you know, that whether you go to J school or you don't go to J school or uh, journalism school or, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of folks that don't realize these are just like human kids, man. Like they're 18, 19, 20 year olds. And for me, I had a big revelation when I got to UNC, like I was always going to go to Carolina, uh, play football or not play football. And that desire to go to Carolina is why I didn't go play football at Wake Forest or Northwestern or Army or Navy or somewhere else. Cause I wanted to go to UNC and they realized that they realized they didn't have to give me a scholarship. My parents could, uh, in essence, afford for me to go to college. You don't need to burn a scholarship on a kid that's a little slow. And maybe he'll earn that scholarship year two, year three. But right now, don't worry about it. And you could have him come on and play. And they capitalized on it, which was fantastic. But I also realized that a lot of my teammates probably wouldn't have gone to not just UNC, but gone to college. And not because they weren't capable. Like, if you can sit down with a playbook and digest that, you have, you know, the ability to, you know, read, understand. You, you can, you know, you can conceptualize these things that are happening. It's a lot of, if your parents, it's the same thing that happens, you know, in the grander population of America. If your parents don't go to college, the odds that you go to college are very low. And I didn't think about that in that context until I got to Carolina and we started talking about SAT scores and what you would be doing if you weren't here. So that human part matters a lot. And then in covering recruiting, which is a big part of what I've been doing recently, there's an element of people that are like, oh, this guy was born in, you know, 1993 or whatever it is. And they're like, it makes me feel old. And I'm the opposite. And being in the recruiting game and being around, you know, these, these kids, these, these guys that are doing the same thing that I did when I was 16, when I was 17, it, it kind of takes me back to being in that mindset and recognizing that, what do you care about? I care about girls. I care about winning football games. I care about girls. I care about, you know, like looking cool, not looking dumb. Uh, there's guys that if you have acne, you're worried about your acne. So all those little things, people forget that that's what's on these guys' minds, even though there may, maybe someone does a commitment video, but at the end of the day, that kid's like making sure he looks cool on camera to his friends and to the internet. And I think a lot of folks, uh, because they're so caught up in the business of football, they forget that these are just, this is somebody's son. And he's a 16 year old who doesn't really know a ton about much. And for the most part, where football's concerned, outside of maybe some traveling, if he plays baseball, some travel team baseball, or, you know, traveling to some major camps for football, if he's really, really good. Odds are he probably has not been out of that bubble that he grew up in in whatever town, little town he lives in and plays football in. So to finally transition into the sport of college football, what's been going on, I wanted to lead into that by first asking about your thoughts on the college football playoff in general. We've now had four years of this four-team format and while there's been some drama in terms of what teams should get in and what teams should get left out, aside from the first year, the last three championship games haven't disappointed at all with Monday night's game, the first to go into overtime, of course, as well. Are you a fan of the current setup and how the college football playoff has turned out so far? Yeah, I think that they've been, it's been pretty much perfectly exactly right. I mean, there's been controversy twice in terms of, Who's in, who's out? The first year, the first year when we look at, or three times, I guess, controversy, but the first year when we look at Ohio State versus TCU versus Baylor and 
to me, you err on the side of the big name. That's that's television, that's ratings. And that four seed wins it all. So, hey, they got it right. If the four seed's winning the whole deal, they got it right. Then you go to a year ago that's after the 2016 season, and it's should Ohio State be in, should Penn State be in. They err on the side of fewer losses instead of conference champion. Ohio State, we know they get blown out. Penn State loses to USC. That's all she wrote. But Clemson ultimately wins that national championship. And then this year, they do the same thing that they did a year ago. They err on the side of fewer losses, Alabama versus conference champ, Ohio State. And the number four seed wins it all the same way Ohio State did when they were a controversial push. So I think they've got it right. I don't, I'm not in favor of expansion uh, because at the end of the day, while we may be arguing Ohio State versus Alabama, that's only five teams being in the playoff. And I would rather leave number five out than put six, seven, eight into the playoff, especially because once you get into eight, you get into a higher number. Now we're talking about automatic bids, which does not mean the same thing as being a top four team in the country. Those are two very different things. So I think it's done right. But I was also fine with the BCS. I'm, I think this is a happy compromise between the two, the big playoff and the, just the two teams playing for the title. So this is a good compromise to me, a good number, and I think it makes sense and it works. As we mentioned, another exciting national championship game with Georgia and Alabama. And the play on the field aside for a second, if you had just seen the end result on paper that Alabama had won, even though it had happened in overtime, would that have surprised you or was that your pick going into the game? Um, no, actually, without any context of the game, just looking at stat sheet, uh, final score, I would have thought, yeah, this is how I thought it would play out, a one-score football game. I, I thought that this was going to be a 2017 win for Alabama, and ultimately it was very close to being that, 23-20, uh, if Alabama makes that field goal at the end. So this is how I thought it would go. Now, how we got to that end result, not everything I thought it was going to be, but certainly – this is the game that I thought we'd see in terms of final score. We saw Georgia really just take it to Alabama in the first half, clicking on all cylinders. As I'm watching this game with a team like Alabama, and we've seen this in the NFL as well, like with the Patriots, when a team is playing someone like that, you need to get all the breaks seemingly, and you need to have all those little things go right, and the 50-50 plays go in your favor. And while Georgia was doing incredibly well, I felt like they needed maybe one touchdown instead of a field goal at one point during the first half. But they looked like they were doing so well with Jake Fromm, a true freshman, really taking control. The running game probably wasn't doing as good as they had hoped it would do, but the passing game was sort of making up for it, and they had all the momentum seemingly going into the second half. What do you think was the biggest turning point of this game? If it was Nick Saban making one of a decision that people will look back on for years to come, taking out his starting quarterback that is two losses to his entire record and putting in another true freshman that hasn't started a game all season, Alabama's defense sort of figuring out Georgia, is there something that stands out as to, wow, this is when things really took a turn? I think there's three things. One, uh, and I think that this first one, these are two points tied together. I think one, uh, you're spot on with Georgia needing seven, not three. Um, those two field goals should have been touchdowns. And if you don't score there, you're leaving Alabama in the game. And Alabama team, uh, this is the second part of this point that's tied, that was played horribly on defense. 
um, massive breakdowns defensively. Mika Fitzpatrick running underneath a block that surrendered a third and 20 to Sonny Michelle in the run game. That's unheard of for Nick Saban in Alabama. Everyone doing their job. The touchdown that Nicole Hardman did score in that first half, Terrell Lewis diving down hard inside instead of maintaining outside leverage over Isaac Nardo, which would have killed that play and made them get kick a field goal would have been nine. Uh, nine to nothing going into the half instead of 13 to nothing. And I think that would have been a major difference in this football game. We may see Jalen Hurts. But then the second point there uh, is is not seeing Jalen Hurts in the second half. Tulatongo Bailoa, to me, is a heck of a football player. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm super surprised. I'm not going to even pretend like it was a crazy, brave move. Nick Saban is a calculated guy. He takes calculated risks. And what he knew was we have a completely different offense that works exceptionally well. And whenever we need it, we can go to it. And what we saw was Hurts not getting the job done. And for Nick Saban, we know this. He likes to avoid controversy. He likes to avoid media discussion. He likes to avoid having to answer questions. He wants to avoid all that stuff. And one way to do that is to just keep playing your starting quarterback over the course of the entire season, which is exactly what he did because they were able to get those wins without having to have a quarterback controversy without having to answer for these quarterback questions. And then at the moment where he needed them, he revealed that, hey, my freshman is more developed than my sophomore. Let's put him in. Let's get. Let's go on the attack. Let's dictate to Georgia instead of having them tell us what, to, what we're allowed to do from an offensive standpoint. And then the third spot for me where things turn, um, Alabama cleaning up what they did. Early, sloppy, ugly, dirty, big mistakes on defense that surrendered large yardage gains. And then they clean that up, especially in the run game in the second half. And I think that was something that will, a lot of people are going to focus on too, but you have to get stops. And they got stops by playing assignment football. Nick Saban's entire defensive philosophy is predicated on each piece doing their job. If all 11 of us do our job, you are physically better than the other team. If you just do your job, no one can beat you. And they went back to that in the second half. And they really found a way to get those stops. It was a big, 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 uh, big change for them. I think that's a great point about Nick Saban avoiding any potential controversies with the quarterback position, as you mentioned, because for many of the games, they're able to play, they're able to win. They don't necessarily play an incredibly difficult schedule for the whole way through. So they were able to get by with Jalen Hurts, and there was no problem with that. And as you mentioned, he was able to make a decision with that that not many coaches are able to make because they don't have the track record or resume that Nick Saban does. They might be even playing for their jobs, in a sense, for the next year, whereas he can do something like that, not have to really worry about repercussions, and then he'll just answer for it at the end. And you mentioned as well Alabama doing their job, and of course we see that in the pros with the team that has also found similar success with an incredibly good coach leading them as well in the New England Patriots. It's amazing that that mantra has been that successful, but it seemed to me in the second half, it was a matter of Alabama having that depth that I don't think a lot of teams are able to have, and that comes in recruiting, that comes in what Nick Saban is able to do. They were just able to throw in a couple different guys that didn't necessarily have a huge role with the team to either get a handoff or a couple of plays 
or hey, catch a game-winning touchdown pass in overtime after really not doing much in the actual game in itself as far as stats go. They have that depth, and we just saw that all game, and I think that ended up maybe gassing Georgia in a sense in the second half, just being able to go to the bench and, and be able to get their players in and out. We saw Georgia do that in the first half and try to up the offense a little bit so Alabama couldn't substitute as much, but I think this just comes down to Alabama just has so much depth, and we're going to continue to see this year after year. Yeah, I think it's a combination of depth, but also, and I think we got to call we got to call spade a spade. Instead of saying just blanket depth, these guys are better. I think that that's something that we've got to say, right? Like Saban sat on stuff because he doesn't want discomfort in the locker room. He doesn't want to change, you know, what he's been doing. He wants to go with familiar. And sometimes familiar leaves better on the bench because you you're you're risk you're risk averse, which is what Saban is. With a freshman running back, you're worried about how's he going to handle the pressure? Is he going to fumble? Can he do pass protection? But let's look at the facts. Najee Harris is better than Damian Harris and better than Bo Scarborough because he's somewhere in between those two as a running back. He's more powerful and has better balance than Damian Harris. Uh, but he's also faster than Bo Scarborough. So that's a great in-between guy. And he's probably, like, in, in hindsight, maybe should have been getting more touches, but they wanted to bring him along slowly, which is why they used Josh Jacobs in that game uh, in most of these games in a spot where they they probably should have been using Najee Harris. I think Devonta Smith is the most explosive wide receiver uh, out of his class. I mean, that cycle, I mean, I've watched him get up and dunk a basketball. I've watched him explode off the line. He's still growing into his body. So, Outside of Calvin Ridley, he's probably the second best wide receiver they have. Not reliable because he's a freshman, but he's the same guy that called the game winner against Mississippi State. Uh, was that in November for them or in October for Alabama? So he's that same football player, too. They know that when they need it, this guy can get open. We just got to make sure we get him the football. And then obviously, too, uh, so I've had Clemson fans ask me, had a couple other fans ask me, why didn't uh, why can't my team do this? And I'm like, here's the thing. Your team doesn't have two of go by Lowell. Like, I don't care how highly touted your backup is. Tua's done more stuff since since February 16, February 2016 to now. Tua's made bigger strides as a quarterback than anybody I've ever seen. And he's singularly focused on being the best quarterback that he could be. And he understands what he has to do to get there. Most, most teams' quarterbacks can't do what he did, can't work in offense the way that he's been able to work. It can't make the strides that he's been able to make. I think people are it can talk about depth, but I also think he's the type of player that Nick Saban wants in his program because of his approach to playing football. It's just like the way that Minka Fitzpatrick approaches football. It's just like the way that Raekwon Davis has approached football and approached his body. It's the same way that Deron Payne approaches football, the same way that Rashawn Evans has approached football. They just happen to have that in a quarterback, and that makes it, uh, it, it stands out tremendously. And we've heard that I guess his younger brother is also going to go to Alabama and is also better than his older brother is at this stage of his career. So Nick Saban has found quite a way to to get uh, some of the talented players that we've seen throughout the past. This isn't going to stop anytime soon as long as Nick Saban sticks around is what people should get used to. And you mentioned they bring in Tua, and as soon as he comes in, 
he starts slinging the ball, and they had one deep pass that was incomplete. But when that happened, I was like, this is completely going to change the entire game because Alabama doesn't necessarily always do that as, as far as deep passes go. They let Jalen Hurts do his thing, what he's good at, and without having a great offensive line this year, I'm sure in the back of his mind he, he's also thinking about that when it comes to, like, I'm going to need some time to throw this ball deep. I'm not going to necessarily have that, so I might scamper around and the play might not work. But you bring in a true freshman who has nothing really to lose and he's able to just make these decisions where, hey, I can throw the ball deep. I, I can throw it fourth down into the back of the end zone, maybe not necessarily at the receiver that ends up catching the ball for the touchdown, but I'll still have enough gout to make that throw. So it, it was an impressive performance to see really on both sides, especially in the first half with what Jake Fromm is to do. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on just the process in general for these true freshmen. And we see a guy like Tua have a great game like that. His stock is as high as it could possibly be from just jumping on the scene. Not necessarily that being a good thing. We have seen players have great one-game performances, but over the course of a couple years, maybe not have as great of careers. But for these two guys, if it comes to college basketball, you'd be saying, wow, they're going to be drafted in the top five when the draft comes around. But now these two players are going to stay with these teams unless they end up transferring. Maybe we'll see Jalen Hurts move if he's not going to be the starting quarterback. But when it comes to just being a young player like that, and having to sit in play in college for another couple of seasons, do you think that's the right move where they should get that education, they should get that extra time on the field in preparing for the NFL, or should they have the opportunity to move on? Yeah, I'm, I think that, I think a three-year rule works out fine. I think especially from a physical maturity standpoint, Till is not a, he's not a grown man yet. I mean, he's still a kid. He's got some growing to do. I think Fromm still has some growing to do. So I, I think just from a protect, from a safety standpoint, Putting a 19-year-old on the field with 25, 30, 25, 29, 32-year-old grown men—that's a little bit of in a full-contact sport where you got a family and you know that it's him or me. I think that that's certainly one of those things that you you want to kind of shield them from a little bit. I think in the grand scheme of things, um, they're going to continue to get better. I mean, this is year one for them, and they've got a lot of growth opportunities. I think Prom will go from a game manager to fully can control of this offense, and that means. They can do a lot more things with him in full control in terms of him calling plays, changing things at the line of scrimmage, uh, finding his weapons, hitting his spots. They got a lot of good players waiting to get on the field at Georgia, too, in the wide receiving group. So they're only going to continue to get better. I think for Alabama, same thing goes with Tua. They're going to have a battle in the spring. Hurts is going to try to get better and get that job. And Tua's going to try to hold him off. I thought Tua might be the starter by midseason. It's low and behold, it took all the way to the title game before Saban was ready to put him in. But this is going to be a battle. And, and, and with Brom, Easton is uh, reportedly transferring to Washington. And there's two battles that are going to come up that. Uh, Jake Brom's going to have to battle it out with Justin Fields. He can flat out ball. He's a really good kid that's coming to Georgia. And then for Jacob Easton, he's going to transfer to Washington. But guess what? They've got Jake Browning right now. And then they've got Jacob Sermon and Colson Yankoff, two guys that are really good quarterbacks as well. He's going to have to battle too. So this is all about, you know, you kind of prove, you, you kind of get to prove. Um, get to prove your stones where I want to keep this job and there's guys coming in that are gunning for me. I think the best part about playing for a program like this, for a program like these, for Alabama, for Georgia, is recognizing that nobody is coming here to sit on the bench. 
Nobody is coming here thinking, oh, that guy's better than me. They're all coming here thinking, okay, I need to go in, put my, do my work, show the coaches what I can do, and then this job will be mine. And that stuff keeps you sharp. That's how Shaven, that's how Shaven keeps his guys sharp. What is it, the iron sharpens iron? These guys all go into practice with that sort of mode of thinking of, you give me an opportunity and I'm going to take it. And it's up to the older guys to hold them off. It's been great to see with the younger players on both of these programs and what they were able to do in the national championship game. It, it was interesting to hear a lot of Georgia fans saying, hey, we, we were a year away from expecting to do something like this. So next year is something to look forward to. And the same goes for Alabama, where they end up putting in this freshman and quarterback. We saw freshmen at the wide receiver positions. We saw freshmen on their defense. They're always going to be right there, too, in the scheme of things. As long as Nick Saban sticks around, and I wanted to close with getting a final thought on him. We know now six national championships. If there was any argument at all, seemingly, if he was the best college football coach of all time, if he was better than Bear Bryant, he put another exclamation point and another slash in the win column toward that with his sixth title. But there's going to be an offseason now of chirping or rumors or will he's as far as if Nick Saban would like to leave what he's built at Alabama and perhaps take one of these open positions in the National Football League and maybe try to rectify what he wasn't able to do his first time around. Do you see him taking the leap into the NFL or do you think he's perfectly content sticking with Alabama and continuing his legacy with them? I think he's content with it. I think if he was going to fix something, he would have gone and fix Texas and he didn't do that. So I think he's content. I think he recognizes that they play a brand in football. They play a brand of football in the NFL that he does not like. And I think that for him, he, unless he's going to get a job that comes with a ready-made quarterback, I expect that he's looking at this and thinking, I can control the game with defense in college. In the NFL, they are taking away the ability to do that consistently. I think I'm good where I'm at. And we got to see him smile and show emotion after they won this last one. So maybe he's actually having fun doing this. <laughs> that was the, the, the smallest sliver of emotion when he's scowling at the reporter and says, this is the happiest day of my life. That was peak Nick Saban. Unbelievable. But it was a great national championship game. And Mike, I thank you for joining the show to talk about it and talk about some of the things you've been able to do in your playing days and in covering college football. It's great watching you get to do some fun things on video as well as just the breaking down of the games. I know if I ever come down to anywhere near Charlotte, not only can I get some good barbecue with you, but we could do a wing eating contest if that might still be on the table. <laughs> Maybe not as hot as you were doing oh. last year in that because I, I don't want us to go through any pain. You know, we could just have fun doing it, but it, stuff like that is, is just part of the job. You don't know if you'll be breaking down the Alabama defensive front or you're going be eating wings with a, a 360 pound recruit so it's, it's it's fun i'm sure and it keeps you guys going and now with all the different mediums we have it it's just going to get better for you so continued success with that thanks again for coming on and, and talking about college football i really appreciate it oh man John, no problem man it was fun and yes that um if we have a wing eating competition we will not be eating those ghost pepper death fire wings that i ate against Darrell simpson who just recently signed with oklahoma because that was not just a rough day. It was a rough morning as well. 
My body was reacting very poorly to those hot wings. Uh, cannot do that again. Will not. Will not. Cannot. Yeah, that that's a rough week right there. That's not just a rough day. That that's a rough week for everything that you're gonna have to go through with that. So I, I appreciate that. We'll take it easy if that's ever the case. Maybe have a couple beers in there as well to coat the stomach. So I think we can make it work. Good man. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This was a real treat. Thank you. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. Along with getting Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, in a special edition to the segment, Joe will break down his top 10 worst movies of 2017. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. And without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is five minutes in the film room. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed it so far, because I'm about to drag you down to rock bottom. It's January, and that's where Hollywood dumps the films they have the least confidence in, so what better time to talk about my top ten worst films of 2017? Let's go to the tape. Number ten. Beauty and the Beast. I actually thought this movie was pretty good, so it's kind of weird I started here, but let me explain. On Christmas Eve, the original Beauty and the Beast, God, that feels weird to say. Just a clear sign I'm getting old, but anyway. The original 1991 version was on ABC, and I watched the whole thing with my family. It had been years since I had seen it, and I once again got lost in how amazing it still is. The animation, the music, the acting... It's just better than the live-action version in every way. So what is the point of this movie? Oh, I know. $1.2 billion. Number 9. Justice League. This is another movie that I enjoyed, but that doesn't mean it was good. I like most of the team, and I like the actors in these roles. Justice League has its moments, but the biggest problem was that it was a middling movie that will ultimately be forgotten. It was just an average movie in a franchise that is below average. Maybe it's time to finally explore these characters with solo movies or go in a different direction. Number 8. Kingsman, The Golden Circle. The reason this is higher on my list than Justice League is that its predecessor was a great and surprising film behind the vision of the great Matthew Vaughn. With Vaughn returning to direct, this movie should have at least been very entertaining. Instead, it failed to capture the fun of the first film and ultimately sunk itself with poor plot decisions. Such a letdown. Number 7. The Belko Experiment. 
This was an intriguing idea with the screenplay by James Gunn. This had potential, but it failed to find the proper tone and ended up being pretty dumb. And it leaves you with one of those cliffhanger endings for the sake of having a cliffhanger. And it's just lazy. I don't know if the screenplay was mishandled or just wasn't very good, but I was surprised to see this didn't work in any way. Number 6. Ghost in the Shell I was pretty excited for this movie. It looked really good, visually stunning, but it was just boring and went nowhere. I'm confident the anime movie is better, but this didn't work. It introduced interesting plot points that were never explored. It was beautiful visually, but there are better movies this year that have better visual effects. See Blade Runner 2049. It's the best Ghost in the Shell movie that came out this year. Number 5. Jigsaw. Nostalgia brought me back to the franchise, which returned to the big screen after seven years for the eighth installment. Problem is, it had nothing new to offer and failed to return to the roots that made the original so great, instead sticking to the quality of the later films that killed the franchise. Number 4. Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men Tell No Tales This fifth installment was better than the previous film. It had some fun elements, but why is this franchise still happening? Though it dipped at the box office, the franchise is still making money, but we are getting tired. It's just not interesting anymore, and I'm one of the few who thinks the third installment, At World's End, is a good movie. 14 years is just too long for a franchise that is based on a Disney ride. Number 3. Underworld Blood Wars You've got to be a fan of the franchise if you're still watching these, right? I enjoy the Underworld movies, but it's not because they're good. They're just enjoyable. This one is harmless, but I'm not sure the creators really care about this franchise anymore. The movie is like an hour and 20 minutes, and again, it's not like Blood Wars is trying to be better than any of the other ones. It's just trying to collect another paycheck. Number two, The Snowman. It's such a bad movie that wasn't made with any sort of competence. Scenes are missing because there was no time to shoot them. This is clearly the biggest disappointment of 2017, especially for fans of the genre, like myself. And last, and definitely least... Number 1. Transformers The Last Night This fifth installment claimed to be better than the others with its series of trailers which were based on a young girl's character who wasn't afraid to fight. She ended up being in it for about 20 minutes while this super sexy woman replaced her and we dipped right back into the same Michael Bay crap that makes the other movies so terrible. I'll admit these are a guilty pleasure of mine, but The Last Night offended me. It tried to act as if it was better, and it was actually worse. It gave us a movie we didn't want and weren't sold. Optimus Prime was also sold as a big part of this movie. He's in it for about ten minutes. It's so disappointing because this franchise is beneath so many actors, yet Mark Wahlberg and Anthony Hopkins are in it. And let me just talk about Stanley Tucci real quick. First of all, he's a great character actor. But in this movie, he plays a different character than he played in Age of Extinction. And that is never addressed. This movie is a joke and easily the worst of 2017. Sexy. Check. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. 
You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific by searching for Sports Radio America on the TuneIn app. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports.